The next Book Arts Press lecture is on February the 24th of February, uh, the 24th of February, and it will be the distinguished conservator and student of bookbinding history, Guy Petherbridge, who will be talking on what I'm sure you will all agree to be the irresistible topic of bookbinding in the Balkans. Balkan bookbinding for reasons which are at the moment hid from me is apparently a subject of genuinely enormous interest. I have it on the very best of authority. That will be on Monday the 24th of February, so you can start revving yourself up for it. No revving necessary, however, for the lecture this evening. John Kidd taking issue with the new Ulysses. It's a pleasure to have him here tonight. several days before the 1984 Ulysses was actually published and in the hands of any scholars for examination, it was heralded on the front page of the New York Times, 7th of June, 1984, as... Uh, oh, you can't hear me. Oh, so I have to pretend I'm down at Gotham without a microphone. Okay, good. Because I do like to vent my lungs, but I'm afraid to near this thing. So, can you hear me now? Okay. The, the publication was heralded, and we've been reading for a year and a half now, uh, that this particular edition will stand as a monument for generations to come. That what it does is give us a critical edition displaying all of Joyce's revisions from the extant manuscripts, typescripts, proofs, uh, divergent documents, his letters, and bringing all of these together uh, in the words of the, the editor of the edition so that all of the diachronous states discreetly discernible are displayed in one moment. I'd like to let the, the editor of, of the 1984 Ulysses uh, speak directly to you at, at some length. It's a long paragraph here about exactly what was intended as the principles for his edition. It's not in your handout. I'll say in your handout when it's in your handout. Ulysses presents an amply documented case from which to work out the implications of the basic assumption that the object of scholarly study, as opposed to an author's object of publication, is not the final product of the writer's art alone, but beyond this, the totality of the work in progress. And that's the phrase I want you to keep in mind for the next hour. The totality of the work in progress. It is an assumption that follows from the theoretical premise that the work of literature possesses in its material medium itself, in its text or text, a diachronic as well as a synchronic dimension. The act of publication which confers upon it a synchronous structure 
does not at the same time have the power to obliterate the coexisting diachronous structure of the work to which, and I hope you'll bear with me, to which the discrete temporal states of the text coalesce, coalesce by compact, complex hierarchical interrelations. The synchronous and diachronous structures combine to form the literary work in the totality of its real presence in the documents of its conception, transmission, and publication. Joyce's textually manifest creation, as in the case of Ulysses, is not the published text of 1922 alone, but this text in its relationship to the accumulating succession of notebooks, note sheets, drafts, fair copies, typescripts, little review serializations, and author's argumentations and revisions in typescripts and proofs, and beyond in its manifest links with the oeuvre of which it is a part. Suitable methods of approach with their appropriate critical tools need to be developed to master the analysis of a text to which the elements are not merely juxtaposed, as it were, spatially, but also succeed one another in time. This is as yet essentially virgin land for criticism. It should be explored from a firm base of editorial presentation controlling both the synchrony and the diachrony of the text and to reevaluate our notions of the artistic nature of the literary work. There may be no better paradigm than that of Ulysses. This is the conclusion to a paper read in 1981 at the Society for Textual Scholarship and I think most of us would agree that a critical edition which brought together all of that evidence so that we could discern these states somehow would be of considerable use. Of course, one might think that a 1981 statement, although published in 1984, was merely a theoretical gesture that may or may not be fulfilled, but the editor, in an afterward note, makes clear that this is meant to apply to the specific edition which he published in 1984. And I'll read you from from his note. In the meantime, since his lecture in 1981, the critical and synoptic edition of James Joyce's Ulysses has been published. Its principles and format of apparatus presentation, as here detailed, minor modifications notwithstanding. So what I've just read you in the long paragraph is a statement that the principles which apply to this edition are to be found in that theoretical statement. And that's the first thing that I want to take issue with. I want to illustrate to you that the drafts and the note sheets and the, the, well, all of these diachronous materials simply are not presented in the edition. It's not a historical record of Ulysses as composed by James Joyce, nor is it a historical record of Ulysses as published during the lifetime of the author and thereafter. And I think if the theoretical principle, as so clearly and eloquently stated by the editor, is not adhered to in the edition itself, then we're going, going to have to go back to the theory and go back to the practice and come up with our own conclusions about how one might edit Ulysses. I want to take the, the case of the Little Review. From 1918 to 1920, episodes of Ulysses... Fourteen of them appeared in serializations either in the United States in the Little Review or in England for six episodes in The Egoist. The typescripts 
which eventually were used to make the full volume published in 1922, were sent either, they were sent always through Ezra Pound, but they were either, they, they were sent through Pound and then diverged to go to the British serialization and the American serialization, or in some cases, after the work was published in America, those sheets were then used uh, for, for the typesetting in England. So we have a somewhat complex relationship, but the important thing to remember is that it's the same typescript that eventually is going to be used to produce the book. All of the typescript which went to the Little Review for publication have been lost. And yet we know from studying the extant, the extant copies of the typescripts, not the ones that went to the Little Review, but the extant ones, we study those and we compare with the Little Review, and it's very clear that Joyce was making a large number of revisions and additions. So it would be crucial to understand the early process of revision if we to have a record of the difference between those typescripts and, of course, the eventual printed form and the serialization. And, in fact, this edition does often call on it. In some hundreds of cases, the 1984 Ulysses draws readings from the Little Review, which are assumed to have been authorial corrections or editions or... Uh, which, were, which have been lost on those typescripts. And in that sense, there's been a recovery of the author's intention at some point. What I found dismaying, however, is that in my own work uh, on the 1922 text, as I was comparing the first edition of Ulysses with some of my copies of the Little Review, I noticed that there were variants which have never been remarked on anyone by anyone. They are not recorded in 1984, and they don't appear in the 1922 or any later, later book. And were these indeed authorial changes, well, then we're, we're in serious trouble because we have, no, we have no place in which they've been identified and singled out. I'll give you an example from the use of the Irish language. Joyce's Irish, although he pretended he did not know it, uh, actually it's been identified precisely who his teacher was and we know which textbook he used for learning Irish when he was in Dublin and in his manuscripts when he would write out phrases of Irish he would often misspell things but at other times he would write in a very precise orthography of his period the turn of the century this was before a standardized Irish came into use in 1944 well I noticed in the little review that there were variations in the spelling of Irish, and in one instance, a word which simply means cheers or to your health, schleintje, had the correct Gaelic accent on it. And what surprised me was, is that in the, the big fat uh, Gaelic lexicon published by Professor Brendan O'Hare, you can tell by his name that he's, he's a, his parents were Irish and he was, he was raised in Ireland, Brendan O'Hare did not know that James Joyce had ever written a single word of Irish with an accent on it. Nor, nor has this ever been observed. And if the expert on Joyce's Irish doesn't know, it's up to the bibliographers and those who study the manuscripts to bring this to light. And yet in the 1984 edition, you won't see, not anywhere in the apparatus, is there reference to Joyce having written these, these manuscript materials. There are various words, Schlantia, Awan, Shkelemar, Bata, Kushtagan, Gapal, and all kinds of Irish, which I don't really understand very well, but, but there, there is Joyce's Irish, ready to be studied. 
there's a moment in the diachrony of Joyce's composition of one work and of, his, and of all of his works. And quite frankly, it's only by accident that we know this. Had I not been thumbing through the little review and seen that accent and returned to the early drafts and seen Joyce writing perfect Irish and putting put, Sinn Féin, we ourselves, Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin Awan. Well, there's an accent on Awan, and it's right there, and yet it's not recorded in this edition, nor, nor has it ever been printed. So, I just give one example. We could expand this to, to hundreds of small areas. We could look at the German or the French or just Joyce's spelling of, of British words. But I think that anyone interested in the language and languages of the considered the most versatile linguist and creative writer of the century, certainly there ought to be have been a record of his manuscripts. There's another reason you'd want to take you'd want to have a complete record of the little review. Because as the these quirky things do happen in the productions of texts, but in looking at a nineteen thirty five edition of Ulysses published in Hamburg to which some corrections had been sent by one of Joyce's friends and helpers I noticed that there were readings that didn't really seem to me to be Joyce's that in 1935 what was otherwise an excellent text was actually deteriorating it was getting worse with each impression and I began to seek out the source who was it that was making these changes was it simply some well-intending person at the press who was making the changes. Because this was published in English in Hamburg. It was the first widespread, inexpensive edition of Ulysses. Well, from the little review, we find certain certain blunders where someone has meant well, but it's not what Joyce wrote. Joyce has Bloom Bloom is has got his hat in his hand, and and he's he sees someone coming around the corner. And, and he doesn't want to meet this person. So there's this, this, what they, this interior monologue moment when it says, instead of hat, it says ha, because inside Bloom's hat, the T, this is a little bibliographical point, the T inside Bloom's hat has worn away. So Joyce had written with ha, keep quiet, slow sigh of relief. Now, what you have there is both Bloom's thought as well as the narrator perhaps saying, well, there's this moment of catching breath, but that Bloom, had, it's okay. And then he can let out with, huh? Sigh of relief. And you notice I made a deep sigh of relief there. Well, that's what the little review editors thought Joyce meant. And so they printed deep, quiet sigh of relief. But that's not what Joyce wrote. He said, with, huh? Keep quiet. Sigh of relief. Typical Joyce to pull something like this and to get everyone confused. And indeed, he has confused the editors of the Little Review. But with Joyce's collaboration and cooperation, an excellent edition came out in 1932, and it did indeed say the correct, keep quiet. But in 1935, someone changed it to deep quiet sigh of relief and so what and there's several of these Boylan 
Boylan is a uh, Blazes Boylan is about to run off for a secret meeting with the wife of Leopold Bloom, and Bloom's there. Bloom's there in the in the restaurant, and he might engage Boylan in conversation. And if he did so, I think that might have delayed the cuckolding for the first time of Leopold Bloom. But he doesn't. Bloom's going to let nature run its course, and if that's what happens, Bloom's going to let it happen. Well, as Boylan prepares to leave, the text reads, Boylan drank off. As drank off, but as one word. Again, leave it to Joyce and innovation. You won't find that in the Oxford English Dictionary as one word, but you'll find it in the manuscript and you'll also find it in the first edition of Ulysses and in the second edition of Ulysses and in the third. But halfway through the history of the third edition, drank off becomes two words. Unfortunately, someone's meddling. And yet, it was the same meddling which had been done in the little review. I have a suspicion that some person who really wanted Joyce's text to be right went back to the source, to the earliest materials, and said, this doesn't seem right to me. Well, what does the little review say? Well, the possibility of unraveling these things, it's not attainable by the historical record which has been published to date. Because the fact that the little review says deep quiet has been not been recorded in this edition, and the fact that in 1935 the change was made to deep quiet has not been recorded in this edition. So even if you, I mean, you had two chances. If you knew the change was in 35, you might of your own initiative go to the little review and find it and then write to Professor Gobbler and say, I've noticed some correspondence here. Or you may have seen it in the little review and then later stumbled across it. You can see what I'm getting at. There were two chances to find this and it wasn't found. And so, maybe... Maybe it wasn't necessary. After all, these are just corruptions, aren't they? These are just moving away from what Joyce wanted. That's what I thought until I looked really closely at the one decision made. And the decision was made that, that, that the change to drank off, Joyce wrote it as one word, but, well, the change ought to be made to two words because, after all, the little review has, has it as two words. So, indeed, they did decide the little review was important. So they went to the little review, plucked out one word, cited it as an authorial change on a lost typescript. They said they admitted it was lost, but they guessed it was Joyce's, and so they made the change from one word to two words and drank off. Obviously, someone, someone in Hamburg had the same feeling, but it was, it was unlikely that it was Joyce. And so... There ought to be an uneasy feeling here that when the little review might be needed to be brought in, then it's brought into the apparatus. But in the case of Keep and Deep, it was felt this is mere corruption and it wasn't brought in. I think, in fact, it's a corruption to split drank off into two words. And I think it's a mere conjecture that Joyce revised something on the typescript. I think he wanted it as one word. After all, that's true Joyce. Joyce... There are hundreds of compound words which first occur in Ulysses, which occur in no other attested form prior to Ulysses. This may be one of them. It occurs in the first edition, and now it's been expunged. So, in terms of studying Joyce's languages, although I only gave one example from Irish, I think you could expand that to ten other languages. 
Or in the case of Joyce possibly revising from drank off to drank off, we don't really have the evidence that we need to evaluate the decisions that were made in Germany and the decisions that will go into effect when all, when, when all, printed cop, when all copies sold of Ulysses in the trade starting this June will be the new text. The text that has drank off as two words without really giving us a full enough documentation to evaluate whether that was the right thing to do. Since the 1984 edition has appeared, I've had the opportunity to try to track, to retrace some of the work that went into the edition. Although it's, it's rumored that I was a student of the editor of this edition, that's, that's really not true. Our first work began, our first contact of any depth began after I received the doctorate and after the edition was out. I never saw a page of this edition until I had my doctorate and it was and it was published and I was reading about it in the New York Times. So but I did go to Munich because I thought I've got to track these things down. I hope no one holds it against me that I went to Munich to try to track these things down. But I I went through some records there. And Jack Dalton, who was speaking on precisely this subject 20 years ago, the text of Ulysses, in an absolutely important essay, I think, in, in the study of modern texts, one that really opened people's eyes, because when the 1961 paperback came out, it, was, it, it said right on there, this is the corrected text. It, well, it wasn't really a corrected text, it was just a copy of an earlier text, they, which they copied because they thought it was better than what they had had before. But there was no act of correcting. No one was going through it and comparing with manuscripts. Well, Dalton really opened the world's eyes to some problems in the, in the book we've been reading the last 25 years. Well, Dalton died before he brought out his own edition. But the only copies of his papers are in Munich. They were loaned to the Munich team. And so I went through there and I found some interesting things, such as reference to postcards, postcard Joyce sent to his typist saying to make a change and, and, and there's some, some variant, uh, some, there's some variation in this postcard between the text is actually published. And I found this notice in, in Munich and there was no record of it in their edition. So I said, well, uh, how many unpublished letters of Joyce's have you managed to, to gather together during the process, the seven-year process of editing? And I was told, well, you, you wouldn't know where to look. I mean, there, there's so many Joyce archives and there's so much material. And after all, his letters, it's so much that, well, no, we, we just worked from the published letters. Well, I then just <laughs> kept it at that. And uh, last April, I announced that uh, Jack Dalton had discovered, indeed, there was a postcard and so on. And the response here at the Society for Textual Scholarship is there such a postcard? Does it exist? Can Dr. Kidd produce it? So just in case you read that little announcement out on the, the bulletin board, scholars make points about points. I've, I have brought a Xerox for you. I, I know, I mean, it does. Th this is it. Uh, and the text of the, of the changes are in here. None of you will be able to read Joyce's handwriting, so maybe I'm making it up. But uh, it is here. And I learned about it in Munich. And I learned about it from Jack Dalton of New York City's archive, of which the only copy is in the trust of the editors in Munich who clearly didn't make use of it. Had they just gone through each file card, I don't mean they didn't use it. I mean they didn't make as full a use of it as necessary. So I decided to write to the various archives and to call 
to contacts and see what I could come up with. So I'm going to give you something of a laundry list of the materials that have appeared uh, that I've been able to find in the last year. Uh, I'll give you the, the, the two most exciting. I'll give you one at the beginning, the most exciting at the beginning, and then at the end. Now, there are eight letters that Joyce wrote to his typist of the Circe episode. Her name was Raymond Lenossier. We had known all along that Mademoiselle Lenossier had had a role in the typing of Ulysses because it says so in Sylvia Beach's book, Shakespeare and Company. It says, Sylvia Beach says that her sister, Cyprian, and so Cyprian Beach and Raymond Lenossier had taken over some of the typing responsibilities after the uh, after various typists had shredded, their husbands had shredded manuscripts and all sorts of problems. So they at Shakespeare and Company decided to help out. Now Raymond Lenossier was not just a secretary. She was a cultured and very educated woman whose father was the most famous surgeon in Paris at the time and quite running in the Le Beau Monde. Uh, she was uh, a, a great friend and collector of all the manuscripts of Paul Léon Fargue and a good friend of Adrien Monnier who went, on to the, who went on to publish the French translation of Ulysses in 1929. So Raymond Lenossier was at the center of, a, of, of, of the cultural activity surrounding the production of Ulysses. She was in and out of Shakespeare and company all the time. But she didn't help type Ulysses after the other typists had had it snatched from their hands by their angry husbands. No, she was the first typist. And we know which pages she typed, and there's even a dark pencil mark in the manuscript where she stopped typing when her father, the famous surgeon, had a stroke. And she was all the, every day, all the time, caring for him for some months. Well, eight letters to her have appeared. And in these letters, Joyce says, Meet me on Friday. I want to go over pages X to pages Y of the, of the manuscript. I, and he says that. And then he'll say in the next letter, uh, all of these changes, I'm getting tired of... How, you know, he's, a, he's doing it in a humorous way. It's driving me crazy for us to be working over these things. Well, this is, this is actually quite amazing because there was no evidence before that Joyce ever got together with a typist. And there were many typists of Ulysses. There was no evidence that Joyce was, in a phrase, looking over the shoulder of his typist or saying, well, that's what, what I want there. Now we've got some problems because the Circe episode, right from the start, has got important variants which have just been shoved right out of the, the, the history of Ulysses because they're considered typist errors. And yet... When you look at some of them, you think, no, no, that, that's Joyce. That's, that's Joyce's hand in there. Now, for most of them, you don't have any proof. You just say, that sounds like Joyce. Well, the typists in here are going over things. She may be reading it. They may be reading together. And he says, he sees the word and she's taking notes. I haven't found her, her, her little notes yet, but I know one place that I'm going to try to find some little... You never know a scrap of paper where it's going to turn up. Well, it turns out, if you really pay close attention to these typescripts and to the manuscript they were made from, you're going to see something rather startling. After Raymond Lenossier finished, and there's the big mark, they didn't continue typing, but they made copies out 
by hand. And this is where I think, I think one of these two is Sylvia Beach's sister. This, I can't prove right now. Okay, working on that. But I think Sylvia Beach's sister is one of the people transcribing. Because Joyce's handwriting was so bad that only Raymond Lenossier, by working with Joyce, could come up with the correct text. Someone just handed it would get nowhere. Well, if you look at the first page of the Rosenbach manuscript, now in Philadelphia, after Lenossier had it, there's a phrase that says, it says, Big Ben, my Cree. Now, Cree is spelled C-H-R-E-E. -E. What that really is is an anglicization of, of half of a Gaelic word. It's a genitive form of it. So what it is is it's, it's makri. Akushla makri. Oh, pulse uh, uh, of, of, of my heart. Akushla makri. So kri in Gaelic is actually, just for fun, I'll tell you, it's spelled C-R-O-I-D-H-E. The H makes, makes the D disappear. Yeah, or not, not be pronounced. Okay, Big Ben, my Cree. If you look closely at the Rosenbach manuscript, there's a little pencil line through my. Now, that's not recorded in the, the transcription presented in 1984, but that transcription, after all, was made from a photocop, from a photo facsimile, not from the original, and it was never read against the original. But I noticed that little line, and the, the reason, of course, I was, maybe I wanted to find the line there, it's there, but I wanted to find it because the copyist didn't write my Cree. The, the copyist wrote Mach, M-A-C, a large M-A-C. Now, I wonder how, if Joyce's manuscript says M little M-Y, why, why the copyist wrote a large M-A-C? Could the copyist have known that elsewhere throughout the book Joyce had been... I mean, this is rhetorical because it's vastly unlikely that, that, that Joyce had been punning on Big Ben Macri. He's referring to, to a man named Ben Dollard and who's singing a song which has the line Macri in it. So, there's a pencil line through my, and what we get is an allusion to another part of the book, Macri. Well, the way that's been handled in this edition is no reference to the, to the line through my and simply a rejection of mock because after all, it's just a copyist error. The copyist had minuscule my and for some reason wrote capital M-A-C. Well, <laughs> I don't know why I'll say this little Irish saying, but in between it which is which is the use of facsimiles and photocopies and not checking against originals I think you're going to be essentially a coach without a horse your critical edition is not going to go anywhere and so as poor as Joyce's Irish was <laughs> he, he foresaw some, some of the problems that we all have in let's say translating his efforts to produce the book into some sort of, of, of uh, critical work well, those, those materials with the typist of Circe are interesting, and they gave me an opportunity to talk on the use of originals, which really wasn't undertaken for this edition. Now, I found another little scrap. It's not much, but it's going to lead to more. There's a small piece of correspondence 
in which the Bodley head printers in, 19, in June of 1937 are sending to Joyce's assistant, Paul Léon, and they're saying, now we're going to make this change unless some other evidence comes forth that we shouldn't make the change. Now, that doesn't sound like much, and it's just one little variant. It's changing 27 to 37. Well, uh, 37 to 27, excuse me. Now, what, what, what it really tells us, though, is that in June of 1937, the people at the Bodley Head Press in London were going about making changes in the text of Ulysses, which I think is, throws a serious crimp into the theory presented in this edition and elsewhere in print that the changes made in 1937 are the result of James Joyce reading proof of the book while he was in a hotel in Copenhagen in 1936. I, no one's gone into the Bodley Head archives. I've only got one little scrap that went to, to Paul Léon. But I think there's something out there. I think we're going to find more evidence that precisely when the text was being changed and who was making the changes. But... Uh, those really aren't documented here. They've adopted a lot of readings from the 1937 Ulysses that overrule what Joyce wrote. You see, that's why it's important. Otherwise, it's, it's really just trivia, isn't it? Well, this word was misspelled in 36, but corrected in 37. No, in 1937, different words showed up. The word figure was changed to finger. On the authority of, authority of that, the word figure was changed to finger. This, that overrules what Joyce actually wrote. It says that someone extended a figure. Well, what that means is going to almost take an entire article to explain within the context of Joyce's oeuvre, but I think Joyce meant it. Someone extended a figure. In 1937, some, I'm sure, well-meaning person changed it to finger. But that's also cha that change is made in 1984. But until they, they've really looked into who's changing what in 1937, then we're going to have some difficulty with accepting their 1937 adopted readings. Going through catalogs of items on exhibition as well as dealers can often show up stray items, and I have found a few manuscripts of Ulysses that were cataloged as in 1975 quite prominently. Uh, I was up in the stacks of level 10, and they're found on page 123 of volume 2, of Joyce et Paris, items 59 through 61, there you will find manu the manuscripts which I'm going to describe cataloged. Uh, this edition specifically states that those manuscripts do not exist. It says quite clearly the last page of TypeScript of the Wandering Rocks episode is lost. It also states that an entire page of the Ithaca episode, which Joyce wrote out in holograph as an addition to his episode, we don't have any of it in his manuscript. We only have, we only have a print. Uh, it was, there was proof set directly from his manuscript for this one case. And uh, that's said to be lost, but that also was on exhibit in Paris in 1975. And quite prominently, we all know about it. Uh, it's, not, it's not some occult secret. Uh, a rare book dealer in Guyana has it in his safe. I mean, it was at the James Joyce Symposium of 1975. I mean, that ought to really... Now, the other changes that I, that, that I want to talk about are, are important for us. Let's take a look at the stemma, uh, which, which I've given you. Uh, now, 
it's, it's always important uh, before you sign, a, uh, sign some document to read the small print. It's also important to read the small print uh, if you're going to pursue any bibliographical questions. Uh, especially with Mr. Tanzel's articles, I found that, uh, that sometimes the very meat of his argument is to be found in the, in the footnotes. Although Professor Bowers, of course, exceeds him in, in that practice in which footnotes and text vie for proportions of the page. But let's read this footnote here. We have, it, it says here that there was also an edition with illustrations of Matisse put out by the Limited Editions Club in New York in 1935. It was set from the second Odyssey Press impression, 1933. It did not affect the text of the main published editions. Well, maybe there's like five or six facts in there. Uh, Matisse did illustrate it. Limited Editions Club did print it. It was in October of 1935. Um, it was not set from the second Odyssey Press impression. We know that. That can't be true. And that was... Now, this... We're, fortunately, as I scrawled this out, I didn't put down the date, but the data from writer to reader is 1978 or so, 79. It's probably not worth remembering, I suppose. But... Uh, <laughs> 20 years before the appearance of Professor uh, Gaskell's Dr. Gaskell's study, uh, James F. Sporey published in the uh, papers of the Bibliographical Society of America called the Odyssey Press Edition of Ulysses, in which he explained the role that the Odyssey Press Edition had had in affecting some of the other editions of Ulysses. He had also examined Stuart Gilbert, the man who helped edit that uh, Hamburg edition. He had examined Stuart Gilbert's personal copy of the edition and seen that there were changes to be made. And Spory had discovered that there weren't really three separate issues of the book in 1932 and then in 33, 35, and 39, but in fact there were three distinct impressions, each corrected, in 1932. Here is entire, a thin paper or India paper, uh, Dune Druk Ausgabe, uh, published in Hamburg. Uh, some confusion, it was actually printed in Leipzig, so when you hear that the plates of this were destroyed in Hamburg, uh, it's un- unlikely. Uh, uh, also, when you hear the plates were destroyed, it's also unlikely because uh, every impression I've examined shows that it was in monotype and there are still typed pieces moving around and falling out. So, uh, don't listen to these rumors about the plates of this edition being destroyed in Hamburg. Because right in the back here it tells us uh, that uh, the Brandstätte Abteilung Jakob Hegner Leipzig and so on. Now, I have not yet crossed into East Germany in pursuit of this, but uh, Dr. Scheibe of the Berlin Academy of Sciences in East Germany has said they'll do everything they can to dig down under the rubble in Leipzig to see if we can find these plates. I said, no, no, not plates. I'm looking for standing type in the rubble. I may have trouble reconstituting exactly what they were printing (laughs) if it's in that much rubble. But Now, this is in one volume, all of Ulysses. And it's all here. Here's 792 pages printed. I want to read you the description. This is the first impression. This is the first impression. I want to read you the description of this edition in the 1984 Ulysses. Here it says, at the beginning of their biblia, at their uh, 
they tell us about the various editions of Ulysses. Uh, there are three authorized uh, by the Joyce Estate editions of Ulysses, three different settings of type, uh, which they have missed. It states here that uh, the present edition is the 11th edition of Ulysses, uh, but were they to go to the New York Public Library and look through the card catalog there, they will see there were three authorized, not pirated, but authorized and widely distributed editions of Ulysses, which they have overlooked. But here their description is Ulysses by James Joyce, two volumes, Hamburg, Paris, Bologna. Now, I mean, they had a little, they had someone who used stationery in Paris and Bologna, but that's, that's fair enough. Uh, the Odyssey Press, 1932. And that's really just about, about, then they say the first, that there were three issues in 1932. They didn't know that there were three different impressions. There's a certain irony there because Dr. Pressler uh, in Munich, who's about half a mile away from the uh, Institute for, for English Philologie in Schellingstrasse uh, number three and number nine, he's about half a mile away. He's the world's authority on this book and has just published a lengthy article uh, last, last March, an, an excellent and lengthy article on this particular edition of Ulysses, giving uh, information and illustrations which I find, uh, well, uh, quite a lot of things that I didn't know. Of course, one would want to know if there were hidden impressions of a book in which it states, as it does state here, the present edition may be regarded as a definitive standard edition. It seems a lot of people, <laughs> that's a favorite phrase involving Ulysses. The, the first Bodley had also called itself uh, the definitive edition, and I just cannot afford that copy on sale at Christie's that has the prospectus with it that says the definitive edition. <laughs> but uh, if anybody is interested in Joyce, I go halves with you. I'd keep it at my place, and you could consult it <laughs> you know, for variants that you may be interested in. Now, the present edition may regard it as a definitive standard edition as it has been specially revised at the author's request by Stuart Gilbert. Now, we are getting to this footnote. Well, there, there's an error in here in, 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 which, in which there's a headline in, in the Eolus the, the episode, in the journalism episode, in which there are the dark headlines. They're quite small here, but in fact, uh, this edition has led uh, one uh, poor, uh, poor soul to say, well, maybe they aren't newspaper headlines. Maybe they're actually captions. Well, that, I, mean, I mean, they're so small here, he thought they could be captions. But... Uh, <laughs> You see, you, you really got to... The things people will say sometimes. Uh, now, this ornamental glacé typeface I don't think would be uh, mistaken for captions uh, in a newspaper uh, because, for one thing, the glacé typeface is almost unreadable in, in, in any small font. Um, but there's a scrambled headline in there and it's corrected by the second impression and yet it occurs in the 1935 Limited Editions Club. So, we know that the printer's copy was one of the first three issues, uh, one of the first three impressions, all dated 1932. So we have a little error here with the Odyssey Press impression 1933. And then it says, and did not affect the text of the main published editions. Isn't that really what's important? I mean, a scrambled headline that might be of interest 
for some of us, but, but it's, it really didn't affect the main published editions. Or did it? Now, the documents, I said I'd save the best for last because Stuart Gilbert, who corrected this, also corrected the Odyssey Press edition, also corrected the Matisse Illustrated Edition. Now, we should have suspected that because Stuart Gilbert wrote the introduction to it and gave a publishing history and gave a history of the censorship and so on. And he was quite up on his details. And if you look into the George Macy papers at the University of Texas, Austin, the Humanities Research Center, you'll find George Macy writing to James Joyce saying, I've talked to Bennett Cerf on the phone and he says it would be fine with him if we brought out an illustrated edition of Ulysses because it won't compete with what Random House is bringing out. And would you mind providing us with a marked up, corrected text because we really want to have the best possible text of Ulysses? Well, of course, Stuart Gilbert, who had just, who in 1930 had published his study of Ulysses, uh, was naturally roped in to do this. And Stuart Gilbert's corrections are to be found in the Macy papers. And it is the first revelation corrections are to be found in the Macy papers, and it is the first revelation we have of any outside hand reaching in to any edition in the lifetime of Joyce is the only real concrete evidence we have for someone reaching in and changing the text of Ulysses. And those changes were made not only for the Matisse Illustrated Edition, but then went in and entered into the Odyssey Press and then therefore affect the entire history of Ulysses because it's the Odyssey Press edition which is the font from which the other editions we have now descend. Now, you see, this is a most unfortunate situation that the librarian of Trinity College in Cambridge is relying on information which 30 years ago could have been disproven by James Borey's article in the PBSA because had he looked in there, he would have had, had, had Gaskell and his informant, Hans Gobbler. Uh, this chapter from which the stemma comes is, is taken from the advice of, of the editor of this edition. See, they, they consulted and worked together. And really, to have this perpetuated, and in many classrooms, uh, it, it says, well, that's, that edition doesn't count. But no one ever looked at it. No one looked at the 1932 Odyssey Press, and no one looked, no one looked at all. No one ever collated. No collation has ever been done on the Matisse Illustrated Edition because each person keeps saying, well, it didn't affect the line of transmission, so it just repeated on. Before I was born, Slocum and Cahoon had put into print that it was not in the line of transmission. And so I had to be born to go to Austin and ask Decker Turner to bring out that file. Well, I think I've, in terms of discussing the basic kind of work, looking at original documents, doing the kind of collations to find out at what points the text is changing. Uh, on your stemma, you, you see these branches going down. What you don't see identified are a dozen points at which hundreds of changes were being introduced. You see it goes from the second impression, uh, the second edition, 1926, and then that goes to 1932. No mention of the fact that hundreds of changes were made in the interim, many of which restore Joyce's autograph. They become the first time in any form in which what Joyce actually wrote in his manuscript, which no one else could have known, 
enter into the history of the text. Most of those were made in 1927. In the 1984 edition, you will read in the information about collation that they have done, quote, comprehensive collations, unquote, and there is no evidence of the author being involved in these editions. And yet when you go ahead and do a more comprehensive collation and you string out the variants, you see they're restoring the manuscript in ways that others couldn't have done. Well, I want to look at the handout now of five pages. In fact, let's look at the one that's only one page. Because one of the... One of the large brontosaurian bones I want to pick is the one that has some French written at the top and the large question marks. See the handwriting? Okay. Oh, I'm going to have to interrupt myself. Here are the errata lists that Joyce and his helpers provided to the October 1922 Ulysses. Because they, they wanted to make clear that they knew there were errors in the first edition and they wanted some of those corrected. Well... Uh, through the courtesy of the Munich team, I've been provided with their handwritten collation list. That is, they put they put the first edition, they put the first printing on the hymn and collator, and and the last printing. They didn't look at intermediate printings, but they put the first and last on the hymn and collator and wrote down by hand the variation which they saw. I then did a little collating of my own in Charlottesville, took their handwritten list to see well what did what actually turned up. Because they said that, well, there was no evidence that Joyce had intervened. I mean, after all, there was only these errata changes being made in the later impressions within the first edition. But by taking their handwritten collation lists and marking it up, I discovered that out of 200 of these errata changes, which were actually made in the plates in 1924, their hymn and collation failed to detect 80 of them, which is a 40% error rate. Now, a 40% error rate in any sort of scholarly enterprise is inadequate. It simply won't do. Uh, what was that? There was a review of a book a few years back and it said, this simply won't do. <laughs> it's already been used in case anybody... <clears throat> now, let's take, let's take a look at the one with the question marks. That says at the top in Joyce's hand. Joyce wrote in French to his printer, always telling his printer what to do. Change this, change that. Put some asterisks there. Well, the 1984 edition gives the illusion that they're recording that material because often Joyce will write something once and then he'll write it again, the same thing with just a very small change. And they'll record both. They'll say, please do this and then please do this. Once again, and they'll record that in the footnotes. That's because they've decided to follow Joyce's instructions. So they'll give it, they'll repeat it as many times as he wrote it. But in this case, as you'll see, the lar- here is the first edition at the top of your page, and here is the 1984 edition at the bottom of the page. You see these tiny little question marks? Well, you see the large question marks, and you see the tiny ones. Well, here's Joyce's instruction about those large question marks. Well, I guess in French we'll start with that. Est-il possible d'employer des types plus foncés pour ces marques d'interrogation? Is it possible to employ, we'll do this literally, is it possible to use uh, darker types for these question marks? Well, you see, if, if you've decided critically, and edit, if you've made an editorial decision to go with, with uh, a typography which is a fraction of the, of the intensity, 
of what Joyce wanted made even more intense, uh, it's prob probably better not to put at the bottom of the page that Joyce wanted them darker. And that actually is a principle at work in this edition. Last April I made the point, it was, again, that's the headline in that article in the Times. Scholars make points about points because Joyce had very specifically said uh, there was to be a big black dot at the end of the final uh, episode where Bloom's consciousness and then Molly takes over. And there's meant to be a big black dot because Bloom is somehow going to be subsumed in, in some typographical smudge, of, although it's a world in its own. I mean, you, so much interpretation can go on. And Hugh Kenner has written about this dot and, and, and how... Anyway, what they did was suppress the instruction that Joyce had made to please make this much bigger. And they printed it much smaller than it was before, before Joyce made that instruction. Well, now we're to our final handout. And this is something you could take home and have fun with because if you ever learn how to decipher some of these things, uh, you'll be able to find that we'll have probably a couple score variants that are not even record, recorded here on the left-hand page. But I want to show you a few of them. Uh, here are the materials that we have. I'll go through and tell you what we actually have in hand. The first page is taken from the 1984 Ulysses. On the left-hand page is called the synoptic text. On the right-hand page is called the critical, the, the reading text. What the left-hand page is meant to do is to, well, Gobbler said in his principles, to, to give all of the diachronous structure in its discrete states, uh, uh, but leading from time to time and, and the totality of the work. Well, all right. Now, now, the next page, and then on the right is what he's edited out of what's on the left. Okay, now the next page, all marked up. Imagine working from a facsimile of this and not from the original. But really, that's how all of their transcriptions were done. And they never checked against the originals. There, there's, in fact, Joyce made an error in his own writing here. In, in, the middle, in, in the middle, you'll see an underlined where youth has here, and it looks like Joyce wrote, and end. Now, that looks like Joyce made a mistake. He meant to write youth, youth, youth here, youth has here, and end. But he's got an extra D on there. He may have just slipped and put the extra D. But you really won't know what's going on until you go and look under that red crayon he scratched over it, which uh, I should talk. I have not seen the original of this. That's why I don't know whether what kind of slip is going on under there. Maybe some Latin word I'm not familiar with. Now... Take a look at that phrase, though. Youth has here and end, or an end. Now, let's flip back, flip back to the first page, and you'll see it two-thirds of the way down with the paragraph exquisite variations. He was now describing on an air, youth here has end. Well, notice the phrasing, the name of the song, the first line of the song has changed between the draft and what's printed here. Well, youth here... In the synopsis, youth here has end. In the draft, youth has here an end. Well, now anyone interested in Joyce's sources in music would be interested to know he's changed the name of the song. He's even changed the first line of the song. Well, maybe he's working from a translation, I, I, uh, the Dutch, the original Dutch. But anyone interested in Joyce's a musicological Joyce has to know about that other title of the song. It's not recorded anywhere in this edition. Well, look at the end of Youth Has Here End. 
Youth here has end, excuse me. I, I, that's not really an indifferent variant, but notice that end has been capitalized. Now there's a little circle there that says whenever there's a circle, that means there's a footnote at the bottom of one of the two pages at the bottom, and you look, you figure out your line number, so you're at line 23, so go down to the bottom of the little footnotes and look for 23, Uh, and that'll be on your right-hand page at the bottom. Look for 23, end, okay, TB. What that means is the typist typed end, but the Joyce, after the semicolon, end, Joyce in the Rosenbach manuscript wrote it with a little e. Well, now we have a problem. The typist... Now, I said sometimes Joyce was looking over the shoulder of the typist, so I'm not one to dismiss out of hand typed readings. But the typist has changed the title of the song, or actually the first line of the song. Now, isn't it really a a tradition that if you're just quoting the first line of the song, you don't have to use caps? So it would be quite normal... And it is Joyce's practice to write it, youth has here, here has end, and only the Y, a capital. But because the typist provided a capital E, it was decided to go with the capital E. Even though they admit here that the Rosenbach manuscript has the small E. But so does this draft as well. And this draft is normally called AP. But there's no reference to what this draft has because perhaps... Perhaps Joyce was wavering. Perhaps there's other, some other thing we have to take into account. It ought to have been stated that in the two times that Joyce wrote this word, that he wrote this as if it were the first line of a song. Now in English, it seems to me very strange to capitalize something in English and only capitalize the nouns as if you were writing in 20th century German. Now the Brother Grimm's in the introduction to their practically 60-volume uh, uh, dictionary of the German language they speak out against capitalizing nouns they don't like that but uh, uh, German editors felt that a song uh, that at least youth and end uh, being nouns go ahead and capitalize them in English however the word here would also be capitalized so you either leave it as Joyce originally wrote it or you change to something with all, with all capitals, that's normal English, but really, to adopt the 20th century German convention, uh, when you say that you're printing what the author wrote, remember the principle of this edition, they said, was to go back to what Joyce wrote. Well, let's take a look at some more things Joyce wrote. Here in the same paragraph, it says, even more he liked an old German song of Johannes Jaep, also known as uh, Johannes Jaepinus. <laughs> who thrived at about uh, 1610 to 1640. Johannes Yape, about the clear sea and the voices of sirens, sweet murderers of men, which boggled Bloom a bit, and this German is going to boggle anybody here. It's, it, is, it is a bit tough. Uh, the interesting thing about Johannes Yape is that he thrived in a period when the typographical convention was that if you gave a proper noun, such as, let's say, the name of the city Darmstadt, you would change the font of Darmstadt, or in fielding, if you said, and I went to London town, you would italicize London. You would italicize, well, you would italicize Johannes Yape. And had Johannes Yape been named in Tom Jones, he would have been italicized. If you turn to your third, I think your fourth your, your, your third page, and the one on the left says 50, excuse me, the one on the right 
above the, the quote in German, on the right, where it says 51. It's fo- little folio 51. Okay. Now, above there, you see Johannes Jape. Now, I don't know exactly, maybe Joyce slipped, but Joyce is, is presenting the name of Johannes Jape in the convention of the period in which Johannes Jape lived. In the first edition, and all subsequent editions, descending from the authorized and sanctioned Ulysses, Johannes Jape is italicized. In the 1984, he's not italicized. This is simply removed. Well, you see, we're starting to get so eclectic here that it's not really what Joyce wrote, but, but what might be done to, to, to tidy things up. Okay, let's go move down to the German. Uh, von der Sirene Listigkeit tun die Poeten dichten. Now, I'm not going to try to give any definitive, well, pardon the use of the word, I'm not going to try to give any full translation of this because we've got some problems. First of all, uh, we're not quoting the entire context, but if you look in the standard annotations, uh, we know that what this is is a variation off of it's, it appears in Johannes Jaep's 1614 Studenten Now, we know that this is a, developed off of something from Homer about, about, the, about the, what happens to the sirens and how the sirens both inspire you but lead you to trouble. And that's really what's going on here. To give the, now, again, this is the standard. I don't believe it's correct, but the standard annotation in print on Joyce says that this means the following and I'm going to do this literally, of the siren's cunning make the poet's poetry. Now there's one problem with that translation is that poeten has been capitalized, but dichten has not. And you see dichten, uh, dichtung and dichten, if this is going to be used in some substantive sense, it would have to be capitalized. So now we're in trouble. We've made end into a capital, but unless this is a noun, Unless this is a verb, it's going to have to be capitalized. So I think we're... we're ...that Joyce wrote. Joyce wrote it out. He's quoting Johannes Yape. Now, it's the X'd out one. The X'd out one. And in the X'd out one, you see... ...von der Sirenen Lichtigkeit tun die Poeten... But look at poeten. There's a, there's a diure, diuresis. There are two dots over the E. Well, now, that isn't recorded in, the, in this edition. And I, I don't understand why not, because if you were writing around 1600 in German, the word, dicht, uh, the word poeten was newly borrowed uh, from the French. This is peculiar, you know, in Latin, poeta uh, is, is, of course, uh, Latin, but it was borrowed apparently through the French. Now in Poet, you do have an accent. But so did the German of 1600. When you go to Grimm's Dictionary and you look under Poetin, you will see that the very first three entries attesting the use of the word Poet or Poetin in the German language have diacritical marks, although in these cases the mark they use uh, is either a Macron or something that looks like a, a French circumflex. The point is it means pronounce the E. Because if you had brought this straight into German without anyone knowing what it is, O-E is pronounced E, and you would have called them Pötten, which, which would not have been correct. 
Now, why is it so important to know about the umlaut? Joyce didn't write it in his final draft, and it's not recorded here, but I think the umlaut is absolutely crucial because I can't find a copy of Yape's book within the United States. I'm getting a microfilm from the British Library through Professor Zach Bowen, uh, who wrote on, on the music, and he, I told him I was going to get one. He said, I've already got one. Now, the m- modern texts that we have now of this song don't give, a, don't give a, a mark over the E. But if we wanted to know what collection of German Baroque lyrics that Joyce may have read, and in two pages later in Ulysses, he says, and the last line of the song, und alle Schiffe brücken, but nobody knows where that comes from. Maybe what you need is the volume that Joyce was citing, but what's the clue going to be? The clue's going to be that Joyce, in his earliest draft, copied out Poeten with the diuresis over it. That's your clue. You may go through a dozen that don't have it, but if you find Poeten with the diuresis, start looking for Unt alle Schiffe Brücken, because uh, you may be on to something. So, in terms of literary allusions, you want that mark recorded in a historical critical edition. Well, I think I've given you some basis for questioning this edition in fulfilling its claims to be the totality of work in process, displayed synoptically and presented as a reading text. And I think we can only regret that the discussion is not allowed to continue before June 16, 1986, when in all the world there will be no edition of Ulysses to read, to buy anyway. We'll all be reading what we want to read, won't we? But there will be no edition to buy in the trade except the one established in 1984.